Alright, ladies and gentlemen, I know, I know you are waiting. Wait, you've been waiting for you've waiting for a few days to see whether I have copped the Wu Tang and Nas World Tour tickets. I haven't. The most public enemy is Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. So here's the, here's the deal. Right. It's not that I can't. Right. It's not that I can't cop. It's more the fact that, well, there's two. There's two. There's two factors. So one is my personal preference is that. I'm not a fan of arena shows. I don't think arena most arena shows fulfill the price tag. I just don't think they do. Um I can see why people would pay, you know, a hundred quid minimum for someone like for a group like Wu Tang and Nas coming through as well. I get it. I do get it. Cause, you know, I've as a as a as a example of another show I've actually copped, um, Ari Lennox, right? You know, she's popping. Um, she's obviously not, you know, on the legacy side of things when it comes to, you know, just artistry, right? She's still she's still cooking. She's still in her prime, so to speak. And not to say that Wu-Tang or Nas ain't, you know what I mean? But you know what I mean, right? It's, you know, they, they came of age in the 90s, I've cried out loud, you know what I mean? And Ari Lennox is coming of age now. Right, so as a comparison, you know, I got two tickets for that for about, uh, I think about 90 quid, give or take, right? So, and I'm seeing her, the event in Apollo, right, which ain't, I don't think it's a bad venue. I don't think I've been there, actually, now I'll say that. <laughs> Just thinking about it, I don't think I've even been. But it's a good venue, right? It's a solid venue. The O2 is a little bit more OD, right? It's a little bit more there, you know, it's, it's, it's a big-ass fucking arena, right? Um, 80,000, I think, is the number, or 60,000, somewhere in that area, right? It's a lot, it's a lot of, it's a lot of seats, and a lot of, um, people standing, etc, etc, right? It's a big, a lot of people there. I've been to a couple of arena shows, and, I don't know, man, I just, I, I've, I feel like smaller venues are just better. They're just better in every way for me. Um, they they the the price seems worth it for most of the time, right? Um, I'm pretty sure. Sh- I hope, fingers crossed. I get to see Nas live because that's kind of the one thing I wanted to get out of this, right? I want to see Nas live. I haven't seen Nas live. I want to see Nas live. I've seen Wu Tang live. Okay, I've seen Wu Tang live. Went to God to Rap 2019 or anything. I forget what it is. You know them, uh, Public Enemy, uh, De La Soul. Rest in peace, Trugoy, and, and DJ Premier. I did a whole episode dedicated to this, uh, to this day. Um, it was so momentous, I made a podcast episode about it, right? I went with my boy Tyler, and we talked about it, and then I gave, I think I gave you a few clips, and then, uh, and then, you know, we talked about it afterwards, right? And uh, it was great. It was great. It was a really enjoyable day. My feet were fucking killing, right? 
And, you know, I forgot how much that, those tickets were, but it was around the same price as this. And, you know, I deemed it worthy, right? And obviously, this is all subjective, you know, worthiness and worth and amount of money, right? So, and the other factor was that um, I primarily wanted to go with my boy D. Um, and he just, um, he, 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 he did the, he asked me the question that you just, can't ask when it comes to these kind of things. You can't ask this question, right? And the question is, um, will they be there by Monday? Come on, it's not happening. It can't have. It's not. It's, the t- for 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 those that don't know, the tickets drop um, as this episode drops today, Thursday. I'm recording on a Wednesday, um, and yeah, so it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They're not going to be there Monday, right? They're not going to be there. Um, so <laughs> the fact that he's asking me that says a lot. Um, now I could, you know, just uh, I could have maybe worked around that, right? We could have worked around it, but you know, he's got a lot of life shit going on. Not to disclose, but he's got a lot of life shit going on. Good, good life shit. You know, what I mean, Ev- evolving life shit, right? One of them is getting a whip driving test, getting a whip, right, stuff like that, and, you know, he's, uh, he, he got saved off some shit as well, right, and I just feel, I made an executive decision, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna cut, I'm gonna cut this off for, for both of us, because he wants to, he hasn't seen Wu-Tang, he hasn't seen Wu-Tang or Nas live, right, so, be a very momentous occasion for him, I'm sure, but I, for, for one, for the mini factor of, for the secondary factor of me not just rain arena shows and for the primary factor that he just doesn't have the scratch right now for it i just feel you know it's there's going to be there's going to be a time there's going to be another time right i'm hoping there's going to be another time because i promised him there's going to be another time for it right this is get this is get i made an adult decision for both of us that's basically what i did and i'm proud of that i'm proud of the i made this adult decision for the both of us, right? And in the long run, hopefully, it makes sense. But here's my thing, and I'll finish here, and then we'll go on to the show. Um, I'm I'm also seeing uh, Patrice Russian. Um, lo- fucking love Patrice Russian, but I'm seeing Patrice Russian. Uh, Patrice Russian um, at the Jazz Cafe as a matinee show, actually, f- funny enough. I've not been to a matinee show um, at the Jazz Cafe, so that'd be quite kind of interesting, leaving eight... I've, I'm here for that. I'm actually kind of here for that. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I don't mind leaving at ten thirty, but leaving at eight, I'm cool with that. I'm, I'm cool with being home by, by home by ten. That's 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 fun for me. I like that. Anyway, um, so you know, I'm, I'm she's a legend, right? Eighties legend, just dance music legend, um, just absolute beast of an artist. Like more instrumentalist, she's a legend in every right, um. But I'm seeing her at the Jazz Cafe. I'm not seeing her at the O2. So you see how that works. So someday, hopefully, I'm going to see Nas just later on in life. You know what I mean? Just later on in life. And it won't be at the O2. And I'll be like, thank fuck for that because I don't want to be in the O2. See, you know, this artist sometimes, and you know, this doesn't happen for every eye. It's obviously like, you know, the likes of Rolling Stones are still touring arenas and stuff like that. They can do that, and that's fine. Go, for, you know, if you can get the money, go for it. Um, but you know, for the likes of Patrice Russian, who is a legend, like I said, 
But you know, it's she's not popping like that anymore. That's fine. That's fine. But she can still do shows. I saw her across the tracks last year, and I had a ball. And I wanted to see her in the jazz cafe because I wanted to see. I wanted to be more up close. I wanted to be in that intimate space. That's why I love the jazz cafe so much. And you know, in twenty, thirty years ago, she probably would have been at the O2, like you know, in that way. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe or maybe not. I don't know. But you know what I mean. You see where I'm getting at? So someday, Nas is going to come through, but it won't be for the O2. It'll be maybe, you know, Kentish Town, the, uh, the O2 Forum. Something like that. You know what I mean? I'm here for that. Like, something like that. Just a smaller venue. You know what I mean? That's what I'm here for. So hopefully, I can see Nas one day in a smaller venue because I'd rather not see him uh, looking, like, looking like an ant as I'm sitting uh, 200 feet away from him. I'm just... It's just not my steeds. I just don't really get the vibe of uh, arena shows. I just, I, I just don't. But anyway, let's go to the show. Um, we have what do we have? Actually, I need to check. <laughs> uh, we have a uh, two life. Uh, yeah, two life music and a media. Ooh, fun. We'll begin with that first. Uh, but for four minutes before we begin, email, socials, writing, all that in full show notes, as well as the music for the show. And also the podcast under the 5VPN did a contemporary call on DITD, um, just dropped and uh, really enjoyed that. Talking about the Silhouettes Project and a little known and a not not talked about enough uh, Snoop Project. And uh, also got in search of source drop in next week on Wednesday and this bi-weekly schedule. And uh, obviously all the other series um, that are going, not going, etc. You know the you know the deal. Uh, also in the full show notes. But, but with that said, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where R. Kelly and Harvey Weinstein rack up more prison time respectively, uh, James Bond books are being rewritten <laughs> sensitivity measures uh see it's like okay so that i don't care about right i get it for old dial books because you know basically fundamentally children's literature um but obviously you know there's the the fact that his writing is just really crude to put it lightly um but you know james bond is james bond like what kid is reading james bond i've never read james bond <laughs> you know i mean i've literally never read james bond i don't know anybody has read james bond anyway um so but i don't really you know what I mean? Why am I reading of mice and men in school, but you're doing sensitivity measures for James Bond? You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense. The way... Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just not going to get into it. Not going to get into it. I nearly went on a tangent. All right. Uh, UK and EU finally agree on a Northern Ireland protocol deal. Only took how many years? Jesus Christ. And they want... The, 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 this is not a W, by the way. It's not a W. I'm sorry. It's not a W. We had all this before. Like We had all this before. So it's just been years of not having it. So what was the point now that we have it? It's just effort for no reason. It's just, this is this is a country in the nutshell just shooting ourselves in the fucking leg for no reason. Uh, anyway, let's talk about that many a time. Uh, 6.2 uh, magnitude earthquake happens off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And over 20 people die in Greece after two trains collide head-on. I, uh, you know, none. I've seen the story. I haven't seen the story too deep, but I just wonder how that still happens these days. Of, you know, 
surely train um, tech and you know um, safety measures and stuff, stuff like that. You know, what I mean the unless there's a big ass hack or malfunction, how are trains still colliding into each other? I don't. Again, I don't know Greece's train infrastructure like that, but I just I don't know. It's just always a interesting uh, thing that I'm always wondering how does that still happen, but it still happened. So um, we'll see how that goes. All right, let's get into um, this media topic. Um, so, I actually this is this is one of those articles that I feel like ah shit because I was literally I've I've written up a draft for a post that is very very close to this. Um, I would maybe hazard a guess to say it is this. It is my idea, but better and said better. Um, it's potential. <laughs> it has that potential, um, and. Yeah, so it's all about awards, basically, and the argument I was going to make, I might still drop it, who knows, um, basically just saying there's no need for mainstream awards anymore. I think there's, you know, for like SAG, for like SAG awards, MOBA awards, you know, industry-specific awards, you know, craft awards, stuff like that. I feel like those are still, they still have a necessity in life, right? But, you know, Golden Globes, Oscars, BAFTAs, uh, Emmys, all that shit. Brit awards, especially for Grammys, of course. Um, can't forget the Grammys. You know, mainstream awards. I don't think they have a place anymore. Um, so let's see what uh, this argument is. Uh, it's called "Awards Are Meaningless." Uh, it's via Vox, and it's by Emily Stewart. Um, so let's see the argument uh, Miss Stewart puts puts forward here. See if it's uh, similar to mine. You've probably heard about the whole participation trophy thing. The complaint that there is something deeply wrong with America because a bunch of first graders got a ribbon for drawing a picture that wasn't even that good or something. The whole debate, which is specific for decades at this point, tends to feel pretty ridiculous, largely because it is. Plenty of things are deeply wrong with America today. Being nice to six-year-olds isn't super one of them. Uh, for one thing, if we're going to be upset about awards, the ones we give to adults are a whole lot weirder when you think about it. We are constantly inventing subjective rankings across society, culture, and the economy that deem certain people, projects, and companies best. We do it in entertainment, in business, in art, and across a variety of professions, from journalism to law and beyond. At the flashiest level, this looks like the Oscars or the Grammys, award shows that perpetually make audiences mad. At a more mundane level, it's the supposed best business in Dayton, Ohio, or an arbitrary list of rising stars in advertising, or a ranking of the best places to work when nobody's asked a single employee how they feel about anything. America's brand of capitalism is zero-sum, one where there's a constant desire for winners and losers. It's grounded in the meritocracy lie, the false narrative that people ascend to the top because they've got the most talent and skill, not because of financial and social advantages. Awards put all of this on overdrive. We invent a metric, pretend like it's objective, and then we make it scarce. And of course, plenty of cash changes hands in the process. Much of the time when a business or person applies for an award, they have to pay a fee. The ent- entities giving out that award need to keep the lights on, and hosting awards can be lucrative. There's a reason media, which is right for the economic troubles, gives out so many awards. Awards entities squeeze money out of applicants and winners beyond entry fees by getting them to pay for tables, or ceremonies, or buy booths, sponsorships, and tickets for festivals and events. You can start to see the issue here. The awards game is one you have to pay to play, and not everybody can. The hope is that awards lead to money, and clout for the winners. You pay money to get an award that hopefully helps you make more money later. 
money is also a factor for these giving for those giving awards away because most of those organizations aren't doing this for free this shit ain't free uh, half the time when i hear of some award in real life my first thought is quote congrats to the winner followed by wait what even is that unquote Marilyn, who works for a legal nonprofit in Pennsylvania, told me she wouldn't mind getting an award or two, but those accolades are out of her organization's reach financially. Quote, we often shut out of legal awards because we can't afford to pay for sponsorships or buy tables, and when we are awarded, we can't always afford to send someone because tickets are hundreds and hundreds of dollars, says Marilyn, who Vox granted anonymity to so she could speak freely on the matter. These are completely bought and paid for, unquote. She's not specifically anti-award. She recognises winning could help attract donors and maybe boost morale around the place. But the non-profit just doesn't have the time or money for it. Another quote, legal aid organisations don't have marketing budgets, she says. My job is to tell poor people what rights they have and do advocacy to change laws. Jenny, a former awards manager and advertising agency who also spoke on the condition of anonymity, found herself on the cash flush end of the awards game and emerged similarly disillusioned. The awards budgets she, she experienced were quote-unquote ridiculous, running from $200 for shitty and non-prestigious contests to thousands of dollars for the most important in her area, Can Lions, uh, spelled C-A-N-N-E-S. Uh, really poor work tends to not win, and good ideas typically win more. But, quote, there are plenty of good things that don't win and plenty of not good things that do, Jenny says. There's a lot of gameplay, hence my job, unquote. It's a little wild that someone's entire job is to apply for awards for people, <laughs> for other people doing their jobs. The gameplay, in Jenny's case, it meant stacking juries, stacking entries by putting in the same ads and campaigns several times and entering ads in categories where they didn't exactly fit, but there might be less competition, another quote. For the most part, juries are made up of people in advertising, so you can vote for your friend's work. You can't vote for your own work, but like all the other judges in the room, know you're there, <coughs> excuse me, and that this work is important to you. So they pay for they, so they vote for it too, she says. It's pay to play. It's not like there is one big group of non-partial judges reviewing every single ad ever and deciding what's best, unquote. It's not just costly to apply for awards, it can also be expensive to campaign for them. Just take a look at the Oscars, where disgraced producer Harvey Weinstein wrote this wrote the playbook for getting film nominations and wins. Quote, studios spend millions of dollars on Oscar campaigns, and there's an effort to influence people to get them to watch movies, said Michael Shulman, author of Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat and Tears. There's a whole cottage industry behind it of campaign strategists and publicists and what have you, unquote. My colleague Alyssa Wilkinson has a full explainer on the whole Oscars campaigning uh, thing here, uh, which generally is a journey of a read. What's clear is that the economics and gamification of the show mean that the final uh, ranking ends up uh, being about a multitude of things that have nothing to do with the quality of the movie in question. Uh, Quote, if you're looking to the Oscars for a barometer of cinematic worth, you're going to be disappointed because they're never... They're not ever quite that, Shulman said. There is no perfect system to choose the best art because art isn't supposed to be ranked. That doesn't seem to stop anyone who can from trying. Good point. A glance under the hood at the inner workings of awards organisations can reveal truths that are a mix of laughable and disturbing. 
Carrie, who Vox granted anonymity to, so she can speak freely, handed multiple categories uh, for Fast Companies Awards to do the most innovative companies. She did this work as a freelancer. She paid. She said she was paid $1,000 per category. And then she heard from another judge that they barely read the applications because it, quote, wasn't really worth their time to sift through them, unquote. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is, the, oh, I mean, there's obviously clearly all the problems with this, but uh, with this overall, but that particularly pisses me off. The fact that judges actually don't do the work and actually, it's not even work. You literally just, you, you, you're literally being a judge for something, so be a judge for it. Like, why are you not? Pie eating contest. I keep saying this analogy. Pie eating contest. Excuse me. Imagine if you're in a pie eating contest. You need to try every pie, right? But people don't try every pie. They just maybe go for the one that looks the best, or you know, go for the one that their mate made. That's literally how people vote, and, and it's more. It's more than you think. Anyway, I'm, I'm I'm just being confirmed on that one. That was a bit of a confirmation bias for me. She says they often took. Applications claims at face value, given the amount of information they had to sift through, a ty- the type timeline, and the pay. You are trusting that a brand's publicist is being 100% honest, which is such bullshit, she said. Carrie, who, not, who no longer has ties with Fast Company, said she thinks one of the companies named to the most innovative list in 2022 was Complete Snake Oil. Her main takeaway, the fact that you have to pay to be considered, to tell, considered tells you everything you need to know. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ongoing theme here. Uh, Fast Company told Vox that its, award, that its awards are not exclusive to the paid applicant pool and that it looks outside of that pool and considers companies that did not pay or apply. Amy Farley, a senior editor at Fast Company, who is one of the people who oversees my sensitive list, told me that the publication works with trusted freelancers who are offered through uh, offered thorough instructions and that, be- and that rates for your freelance pay have increased because we understand the high standards that we have for our freelancers or anybody working on this process. She also said said there is never a situation where only one person is engaging with the applicant pool and that there are multiple editors involved at all stages. Companies are paying to apply, but this is an extraordinarily large program that involves a lot of different parts of Fast Company. She said, adding that, thousands of hours of work are put into the awards process. We take the integrity of these awards very seriously. Beyond the how of awards, there's also the why of them. Simply put, do they even matter and how come? And the answer there is dot 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 complicated. It's not that awards for adults are entirely meaningless, but what they mean is not really whether someone, something or someone is good or bad. Take Crash winning the Best Picture Oscar in 2006 or whatever seems uh, to always be going on with Beyonce at the Grammys. Awards are less about who's best at the game, but instead who's hacked the game best. They're often doled out based on money and influence. Who knows who? Who even has the time and cash to sign up to be considered? Awards are seen as good PR, and indeed, having good PR is often how you get them. They're also good PR for the entity giving out the awards. Reporting for this story, I heard from multiple people who work in communications about applying for awards, because this is often part of their jobs. Nobody could put a real value on them. Most suggested awards were generally decent for PR and generating some buzz, but didn't get real specific. For awards, it's really hard to pinpoint what the ROI is, said Colin Crook, the founder of Fractal PR, communications firm based in San Francisco. It does fall apart of the vanity metric part. Uh, We want to make sure when people consider coming to work here or they're looking for the next great opportunity, we have something that we can show them that says we're a trusted place for you to look at. 
Matt Shulman, a communications, two Shulmans, a communication professional who has applied for a multitude of awards for clients in an agency setting in the past, said having some sort of best workplace for award for ranking is a feather in your cap for recruiting and listing on job postings. He pointed out that some entities that hand out these types of awards do employee surveys that are A, helpful for businesses to get a sense of employee sentiment, and B, theoretically makes rankings fairer. Uh, I'm just going to see how long I've got here. I've got a few paragraphs here, and I'm running for time. Um, so I'm going to skip a little bit ahead, uh, or I might skip it entirely. There's a few, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's about six-ish, pa- six-ish paragraphs, six-ish why did I say six-ish? Like, what's the point? <laughs> There's a few paragraphs left. <laughs> Fuck's sake. But um, I think we get the point here. Um, we'll finish here. If I'm honest with myself here, whenever my employer sends out a notification about awards applications, my first instinct isn't that I want to collaborate more. It's that I want to do my own thing and win. Then I remember I'm too lazy to fill out any of these applications and don't really care and move on. And if one is generally unhappy with work, uh, getting a gold star doesn't address that. Good point. And yeah, there's no design that uh, winning is fun and recognition can feel good, but it's also important to keep in mind that a lot of what anyone is winning is made up and that recognition isn't really the end-all and be-all of anything. Not everything has to be divided into best and worst. A lot of the time, it's fine just to be. Yeah, but you've got to get these dubs, mate. You've got to get these dubs. See, I like the angle she did um, in terms of just like, you know, not being towards uh you know art and film and tv and stuff like that obviously the thing i'm i mean the thing i've done a draft for i'll say um is obviously squarely uh focused on you know just arts awards and uh, stuff like that the mainstream arts awards um but you know for stuff like law or um uh, commit a pr stuff like that you know what i mean and you know just general business I kind of get it, I guess. Like, I don't know if, like, personal awards make anything, any difference. Um, I don't mind the idea of, like, internal awards, but I guess that's not really any point either. Just give people money. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Just People don't need a trophy. They need raises, you know what I mean, for some of these jobs. So, fuck that. Um, but, you know, for law... Does that really matter? I feel like that's a. That's, I feel like law firms don't need that kind of gas. They don't really need it. You know what I mean? It's this more. Isn't that more of a reputation thing? You know what I mean? If you're if you're in a if you're in a high profile case and you get the dub, then you know that's that's the that's the award. That's the advertising right there. Boom. Um. So I don't know, man. I don't. I don't feel like I'm not in those worlds, so I can't really say. Um. But I don't really imagine that being a need. And yeah, definitely art awards overall are not necessary, are really not necessary. Um, you know, I do end of year lists, but that's just purely me, Be you know, just me. It's not a consortium of people, it's not a cabal, right, it's not a judge's chamber. It's just me, it's me talking about albums I liked over the year, or EPs I liked over the year. So, I don't know, a little bit different there, I feel. Um, it's, I'm not really giving awards, so to speak. I'm just literally just naming albums that I like and ranking them when it comes to albums, especially, but um, not ranking songs and EPs. So that's just recognition on my part. That's just me wanting to recognize these works and put you guys on if you're interested um, and just let you guys know what I've been fucking with over the year. But apart from that, you know, I'm not giving out trophies. So what's really the point? Uh, but yeah, art awards not necessary really really not necessary at all
let's hop into music. And uh, this is a fascinating uh, just uh, topic, I guess. Um, it's, it's more directed towards, you know, producers and how, um, especially hip-hop, um, and how sampling even happens and goes down. Um, so if you're in that world, um, definitely something for you to chew on here. Um, this is via Tracklib. Um, it's called Artificial Digging, How Google's AI Now Reveals What Producers Sampled. Um, and it's by Danny Vikens. Um, so let's jump right in. Back in 2011, <coughs> on a spring edition of Los Angeles's The Do-Over Block Party, headliner DJ Jazzy Jeff started playing Herbie Hancock's Jessica, seemingly an odd choice to get a crowd going. But as soon as he loops two bars and pitches that down by 14 semitones, the melody of Shook One's Part 2 by Mod Deep begins to take shape. Questlove comes rushing to the DJ booth to see it with his own eyes. Right then and there, a sample mystery that has been around since 1995 was unriddled live on the spot, shortly after it was discovered by Timon Bronco Heinke on music forum The Breaks. The response by Questlove is priceless. Um, and there is a video evidence here If on the on the article if you want to go spin it. I remember seeing it a couple of weeks ago or a week ago. And um, yeah, it's this. It, it, I love that shit. I love, I love that. I love that shit. That part of DJing is so cool to me when people just like play the sample and it's and then you you slowly get it. And you're just like, oh shit! Like it took a while for the crowd to get it, right? Um, but when they catch it, it's very it's very cool. Uh, that beautifully captured moment is just one example of how crate diggers have unearthed samples for as long as the art of sampling itself exists. Uh, that's been thoroughly documented and widely debated from late 80s compilations such as Ultimate Breaks and Beats to today's online databases like Who Sampled. The thought of artificial intelligence discovering a sample isn't as charming as the sight of a mind-blown quest love geeking out together with Jazzy Jeff, but the significance is huge. The technology breaks uh, entirely new ground in identifying samples with a method that was discovered only recently. Covertly, by, covertly pioneered by members of a Discord community by the name of Sample Hunting. Not long after Daft Punk's breakup in 2021, several sampling, sampling fiends bonded online over a mutual obsession to find the unknown samples on Daft Punk's seminal 2001 album, Discovery. More specifically, in the sample dense Face to Face, co-produced by Todd Edwards. The founder of the Sample Hunting community goes by the moniker of Lobelia, she already dabbled with Google and Shazam to detect samples around 2016-17, but it took another five years before she realised this could be a game-changer. Quote, When Google Assistant helped me find South City Midnight Lady by the Doobie Brothers as a guitar sample in Face to Face in late 2021, I realised that this method could be huge, she recalls, especially because at that point we didn't even know that sound was a separate sample. We actually thought it was a part of another sampled record. But it wasn't until mid-2022 that Google's song recognition turned from another mid-Shazam alternative to a groundbreaking discovery for them. A sample-hunting member by the name of DJ Pasta found a new way to utilise technology to the fullest. I figured out a method to run audio directly from my PC into Google Assistant with software called Bluestacks. I was mostly trying out a few Todd Edwards samples I had been looking for at the time. To my surprise, Google Assistant's song recognition found most of them. Eventually, I had the idea to try out shorter samples, like Carrie Lucas's Sometime A Love Goes Wrong. A stint of discoveries followed, also by other members of the community who started using Google Assistant. From there, they had pretty much taken Google Assistant on board 
as the new default for sample hunting. On top of their continued discoveries by ear, knowledge of music and labour of endlessly digging through music. Lobelia recalls the recalls there was a sample drought for Daft Punk's face to face up until July 2022. Uh, I slept through what I slept through what we now call the night of many samples. When I say when I'd say a dozen samples were found, I can't describe how crazy waking up to all of that was. Since then, the tongue-in-cheek call Google's song recognition technology the blessed AI, a divine status with the community members as, as his disciples. That led them to unravel previously uncovered samples in music by Mob Deep, Madlib, uh, Sash Quasimodo, New Jabez, Daft Punk, and French house duo Mojo. Um, they have all the song names as well, uh, you know, uh, in the brackets, but I just decided to do the ice anyway, uh, among others. It's an ever-growing list of samples that were shrouded in mystery for over two decades, one that even the most seasoned diggers haven't, hadn't found before. Now artificial intelligence is outsmarting them. Both Shazam and Google Assistant use similar audio fingerprinting methods. But as exemplified by functionalities like Hum to Search in 2020, Google's use of deep neural networks makes the tech behind their song recognition far more advanced. Quote, Google Assistant can even detect samples less than a second long and is usually able to detect samples that have been chopped or time-stretched, explains DJ Pasta. According to Lobelia, that's far more accurate than alternatives like Shazam. Quote, With Shazam, we usually had to try and match the tempo and structure near perfectly to get a result. We usually go against using Shazam anyway, because for some reason Shazam likes to suggest random EDM tracks in the 2010s. Not very helpful when you're looking for a jazz record. There are also ways to trick Google Assistant in uh, giving successful results for short samples. From DJ Pasta, quote, If the sample you are trying to find is part of a much longer draw-it-out chord or texture, you can time-stretch or cross-fade a loop to make the AI think it's longer. You can also repitch the sample to form a chord progression, uh, it's, uh, if you guess it correctly. Another useful hack, according to DJ Pasta, is the use of AI stem separation, or manually extracting certain elements with toolkits, such as isotope RX. This is a lot of effort. It sounds like a lot of effort to do. I mean, like you know, I like I like me some samples, but this is like damn, <laughs> this is dedication. I uh, respect it. So should producers start to worry now? What's next after audio fingerprinting systems like YouTube's Content ID have already proven to be quite effective when it comes to detecting copyright material? The difference is uh, that this new method puts control into the hands of anyone looking for certain samples as opposed to relying on a uh, fingerprinting system fully controlled by a tech giant. Quote, Something like this is more effective to detect much shorter and manipulated samples, says DJ Pasta. If it's a rights holder's own release, they also have access to multi-hacks, which means they don't need to manually edit the audio or isolate any samples. Unquote. Considering this method is only in its infancy, this sets a precedent for the future of what is what's commonly known as sample spotting. Another quote, it's just a matter of time before people even more people before even more people start using this particular technology as well, says sample hunting founder Labelia. It gets even more reliable over time. Last year was only the beginning. We're all hungry for more. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a DJ, so or a or, you know, a producer, so I don't really it's hard for me personally to, you know, gather and to compartmentalize the kind of like the not the risks but like just how to feel about it i guess you know what i mean i don't really I, like 
Is this is this a bad thing? I mean, I guess because if you put something, if you put something in your track and you haven't paid for it, then YouTube ID is going to just you know uh, slap you for it. You know that could be annoying. And then obviously you can be sued for this shit. So I guess on that front, yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, you know I don't want I don't want sampling to go. Um, you know, like the way of the dodo. You know, I don't I don't. It's already been cut down significantly um, since the nineties. Um, if you guys look up Bismarcky, um, uh, just Bismarcky sampling case, um, you'll you'll find the whole story there. And basically, after that, uh, after that court case, sampling went down. Like factory went down. Um, shout out to Ben, obviously co-host of Digging Digits. He did the numbers on it years ago, and we did an episode on it as well, um, covering it. Uh, samples went to, went down and the only time people had more samples than the average was when they had a lot of money so you know the jay-z's and you know the bad boy records of the time right those are the people that put mad samples into their shit everyone else were just tr- either not doing it anymore uh or picking less samples or being like uh you know like daft punk or mad lib or new jabez or whatever and just being sl- slick with it you know and and just being super slick and now they're clocking shit that's not even seconds long shit that, that sound I don't know I don't the, my question is is this an existential threat to sampling um, and the article didn't really answer that question for me which is unfortunate but it's a question that I'm going to ask instead I'll hop into our two life segments now, and um, this is an article I found uh, last year, uh, late last year in November, and uh, I bookmarked it on my Twitter account, and I totally forgot about it, so I was just looking for my bookmarks this week, and I was just like, oh yeah, I wanted to read this, so here I am reading it. <laughs> uh, so this is by Tamiwa uh, Owolade, uh, it's called The British The Quiet Revolution in Black British Identity. Um, and yeah, just a very fascinating article. Um, I wanted to give it a spin, so here we are. Bakaya Saka uh, played brilliantly for England in their first World Cup match. Stormzy's much-anticipated third album was released last week. Lil Sims recently won the 2022 Mercury Prize for her fourth album. Black British people of African descent are increasingly dominating pu- uh, British public consciousness, but they have a fascinating history too. The first sentence of Peter Fryer's 1984 book, Staying Power, is unforgettable. Quote, there were Africans in Britain before the English came here, unquote. One of the most acclaimed books on black British history, Staying, uh, Staying Power, starts with the Africans who were stationed in Britain when it was still a province of the Ro- Roman Empire, a few centuries before the Anglo-Saxons arrived to establish what became an English identity. Those early Africans had a transient present, uh, and only a very small smattering of black people have lived in it since then, from court musicians in Tudor England to formerly enslaved authors in Georgian Britain. The first substantial population of black people in the country arrived after the end of the Second World War, the Windrush generation, and most of them came from the islands of the Caribbean. The population of black Britain, however, is now more African than West Indian. According to the 2011 census, there were nearly a million people in England and Wales who identified as black African, almost 600,000 identified as black Caribbean. And obviously this this dropped uh, before the 2021 uh, 
yeah, the 2021 census. So maybe I'll look that up afterwards. Who knows? Um, I expect that gap to have widened when we get data from the 2021 census as immigration for, uh, to Britain from Africa, even after the exit, has continued to increase. And that's not a lie. That's not a lie. It's probably, it's probably exactly uh, what they meant. Uh, this change in the nature of the black British uh, population hasn't been fully registered in contemporary analysis and is too recent to have been comprehensively surveyed in history books. In his landmark 2016 book, Black and British, David Odesoga writes that this second great wave of black migration has largely gone unnoticed. The Evening Standard food critic Jimmy Famurewa uh, writes in his account of the African diaspora in Settlers, uh, published last month, that, quote, the increasingly dominant presence of black Africans in the UK hasn't always been reflected in how we look at race and Britishness today. Reading Famuera's, uh, Famurewa's uh, fascinating book, yeah, I was uh, reminded of how much the demographics of Black Britain have changed in the past 30 years. Many of us still associate Black British identity with Caribbean culture. There may have been a better case for doing so in the not-too-distant past. In the early 1990s, the most famous Black people in Britain included Ian Wright and Paul Lintz in football, Frank Bruno in boxing, Diane Abbott in politics, and Lenny Henry in comedy. All of them are of Caribbean descent. There are a few black British celebrities with black African backgrounds, Chardet, Seal, and Justin Fashionu, immediately come to mind, but not as many as today. In 2022, as well as Saka, Stormzy, and Little Sims, prominent black Britons with African heritage include Kwasi Kwarteng, the former Charles Exchequer, and Bernardine Evaristo, the president of the Royal Society of Literature, the Olympian Mo Farah, the BAFTA-winning screenwriter and actor Michaela Cole, and young film actors such as Daniel Kaluuya and John Boyega. While we know as contemporary black British identity is a combination of African and Caribbean influences and some influences from American culture too, of course. But the relationship between Africans and West Indians in Britain has not always been smooth. This is something Famarewa uh, highlights in Settlers, the reviews of his book in the press have not touched on. Historically, many Africans have looked down on West Indians as lazy and decadent. <laughs> Um, it's actually, um, I forgot what sh- uh, was it, um, In the Long Run, I think it's called, um, with uh, Idris Elba, um, and uh, basically, you know, he's, him and his family, like the Sierra Leone, and uh, uh, he's the dad, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a good, there's a good storyline of uh, when, um, I forget the wifey's name, but she get she works, and uh, she works with, uh, with a Caribbean woman, and they're basically just beefing for like a few episodes, and it's very fascinating how that was, because I never felt that. Um, I don't feel, I don't feel the beef there. You know what I mean? When I see an African homie, I'm not beefing. You know what I mean? I'm like these fucking Africans. You know I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But back then, they were beefing. They were literally beefing um, on that front. Some West Indians, by contrast, have seen Africans as either pompous nerds or crude. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I, I you know, I see that. <laughs> I get that. Um, but I never, I never feel that now. Um, in the, these days, apart from, you know, when it's for comedic purposes. Uh, in the 80s, for instance, Sonny Henry was on television mocking Africans in the show Tiz Was. Felix Dexter, Dexter in the hit 1990s comedy show The Real McCoy was playing a snooty and ridiculous Nigerian accountant called Nathaniel. I hope, she, I hope um, they, don't mean, they mentioned Desmond's, but, you know, Desmond's is a good shout. Um, there was an African character there. Jeez, I'm forgetting names like really badly today. Um, but there is an African homie there, and he's a student, and you know he's like a bit you know, uptight. But and then, everyone, and then you know, he's constantly getting roasted by the rest of the 
Jamaican contingent. It's, you know, it's funny. I, don't get me wrong, it's funny. Um, but yeah, I can... I, still, man, it's ridiculing in that sense. Um, it's fascinating. As a, as, a, as a historical text, especially. Anyway... Uh, Fan Rivera, who was who comes from Nigerian family, was born in Britain in 1983. Comes from and from his school experiences, he writes that quote for a long time to be African was many things, but set against a culturally defining blackness of say Bob Marley, it was never ever cool. Today there is uh, less of that kind of tension and more cultural unity. This is embodied, for instance, in the use of multicultural London English or MLE. Uh, I did a long read based on this uh, from the New Yorker. Very fascinating long read. If you want to go give that a spin. Combination of Cockney, Jamaican Patois, African in- intonations, and other ethnic minority in- influences. It is inde- indigenous, I think, uh, how you say, it? indigenous to Britain. Uh, young black boys and girls in inner city London use it, but white boys and girls in Somerset use it too, such as 15 year old Alex, who rapped alongside the grime artist Dave in the 2019 Glastonbury Festival. I find that so. That just, still irritates me. I don't know why. Just having this. Just people gassing up this white kid for for like rapping a Dave track with Dave. It's like, like you gonna you gonna put that kid on Good uh, Good Morning Britain if he was black? I I don't think so. I really don't think people cared that much. Um, but because it was a white kid from Somerset, it was just like, oh whoa, this white kid from Somerset knows Dave. It's like okay, Ugh, I don't know whiteness man. In the past, crime music was largely dominated by black Caribbean people through rappers like Wiley Kano and others. But many of the prominent names now come from West African background. Stormzy Dave, Lil Sims. There are differences between black Africans and black Caribbean people. But there are also a variety of similarities. The same is also true of the friendship between black African people and the rest of Britain. Or more specifically, England. Saka continues to carry on his excellent, uh, excellent Arsenal form uh, for England. Uh, it will be the latest and one of the most striking chapters in the growing connection between black African people and British brackets, English society. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess it's more about the population thing, right? That I think that's kind of the crux of it all. That you know, once you get down to the nitty gritty, there's just going to be more British Africans now than uh, British Caribbeans, and the culture should start to reflect that. And it probably and it already still is already. It's still, it's getting there. It, the the change is already happening, um, you know. I'm starting. I mentioned in the long run, you know. What I mean, that show wouldn't exist twenty years ago. That really wouldn't exist. Maybe ten years ago, um, you know. But but something like Desmond's was there in the eighties. Um, you could get a Desmond's now, definitely. But um, it wouldn't. They'd make it African, right? <laughs> There's there needs to be like an African Desmond's now, um, and it probably. St- it probably has a a right to be there now um so yeah it's very fascinating and um obviously you know the melting pot continues to keep melting and uh some of this don't matter but you know even hey man even when i'm doing the show right now um you know the nigerian elections happened i think yesterday or got announced today or something and i've not kept up with it you know i i don't have nigerian homies like that um and even if I did say, I don't know, I don't know would they, you know, would they care um, about, you know, they're here, they're not there. So I don't know, would they, whether they care about that kind of thing? I don't know. Uh, it depends how close they are proximity wise to their Nigerian background, right? Um, 
But yeah, you know, I see I see a bit of it. I'm on Twitter and that, but you know, I don't really keep up with it. Why do I? Why why would I keep up with it? I'm not Nigerian. So, you know, there's an interesting there's an interesting uh gap there when you think about it. Um but regardless, there's that melting pot and that's probably the overriding factor here. And I'm here for it, regardless of that. I'm here for it. Lil Sims is my favourite right favourite fucking rapper right now. She's my favourite artist right now. You know what I mean? Like, the fact that she has uh, uh, African descent doesn't really, you know, that's fine. Cool. <laughs> I'm not beef. Uh, why would I beef that? Uh, she's mainly she's mainly London, right? So, like, I kind of vibe with that more than, more than anything. But, she, you know, she keeps the African roots in some ways. You know, go listen to Point and Kill. But then there's something like Woman, where she's talking about several women from several parts of the world. And it's very fascinating how she goes about that. It's one of my favourite songs. Um, so, yeah. It's It's interesting. Um, it's something that I didn't really rec- recognize until I read this, but now that I'm thinking about it, it makes it really makes a ton of sense when you think about it. I finish up. Uh, with the second life segment and uh funny enough you know mentioned talking about emily english emily and uh, stuff like that and uh it's, it, it mixes pretty well with this one so uh this is about um the cockney dialect the cockney dialect okay um and uh you know people people saying cockney's dead right but you know like emily it's i you know i invest i have uh in heavily invested in emily for me for me personally i feel like you know i talk in a very specific way um and it's a mix of plenty of things you know i say ting <laughs> right but I'm, I'm also you know talk like this sometimes you know what i mean <laughs> i do i love i love i love doing that it's fun it's fun to keep it flexible um but uh yeah it's, it's interesting how um i guess dialects uh, evolve but anyway uh, this is called. This is a uh, final conversation as uh, by uh, uh, Amanda Cole, who is lecturer in the Department of Language and Linguistics at the University of Essex, and uh, it's called the Cockney dialect is not dead. It's just called Essex now, <coughs> and it's true. I think I think it's true because um, I mean, look at me. Like, you know what I mean, but, but, you know, basically bred in Essex, and uh, you know, the Cockney accent um, is uh, I hear it more over here than uh, when I go to London. And so that's very interesting when you think about it. Alright, let's get into it. I'm not going to talk Cockney the whole time, by the way. As English dialects go, uh, Cockney is one of the most influential. Long considered the, the preserve of working class communities in East London. Uh, here shaped the way people speak across the country, from Reading, Milton Keynes, and even Hull, all the way to Glasgow. Even Queen Elizabeth II, throughout her lifetime, began to speak in a way that was, well, a little bit less Queen's English and a little bit more Cockney. Compared to the 1950s, by the, by the 1980s, Compared to the 1950s, by the 1980s, the way she said goose, food, or moon, for instance, had changed subtly. Her later pronunciation, with the tongue a little bit further forward in the mouth, was in line with the general patterns of change in southern England. I, I, I'm surprised anyone clocked this kind of shit. <laughs> like, oh, let's, let's think about the Queen Elizabeth speech patterns. Like, all right, fair enough. That's your research money. Um, as is often caricatured, Due to the pants migration and settlement, the way vowels are pronounced in Australia and New Zealand have some notable similarities with Cockney. So, similarly to Cockney, uh, the Australian take on the word bike, 
sounds to many British ears like the word bike. <laughs> it's the fact I said bake in Australian and it actually worked. Bake? <laughs> bike. <laughs> oh, that's fucking hilarious. I love language. I really do. Uh, which has the potential to cause some confusion. Cockney might uh, thus have spread around the world, but research published in 2011 found that in East London, young people increasingly speak multicultural London English, a different dialect which includes elements of both Cockney and other languages and English dialects from uh, from around the world. These findings led many to suggest that Cockney was on the way out, but Cockney certainly didn't feel dead to me. From our childhood where I lived, a stone's throw from East London or a red brick estate in Essex, my granddad nattered away in rhyming slang. We sang rounds of Cockney ding-dongs songs, uh, such as Knees Up Mother Brown and our local pie and mash uh, shop thrived. In my newly published research, I have shown that Cockney hasn't disappeared. It moved to, to a semi-detached house in Essex. Cockney's descendants in Essex have kept the foundations the same, but they've not through some walls, built an extension and added a lick of paint. The Essex dialect is built on the foundations of Cockney with some new elements. So this is interesting because um, not that my pops or my mum uh, are East London. Uh, my pops was um, North London, um, Stoke New, no Stoke Newington, you know Arsenal Highbury Way, and my mum was Welsh, so clearly not there. Um, you know they don't talk Cockney. You know what I mean they 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 have no reason to talk like that, but they did move. Um, they did move to Essex, hence why I'm here. Um, and that's very interesting uh, that the migration was a ge- is it was and is a genuine thing. Um, it's still happening today. I'm still you know seeing you know families that give off a London vibe. You know what I mean they come down here, uh, they come down to my ends and uh, make a life here instead because you know we're about an hour from from London, an hour's drive, an hour's train. So you know we can get to London, but it's not in London. It's firmly not in London. Um, so it's interesting, um, but anyway, uh, I'm I'm prefacing I'm prefacing this because we're about to talk about um, why East Londoners have moved to Essex, and I'm just I'm saying it's not just East Londoners um, that moved to Essex, but you know a majority of Londoners, well not a majority, but you know Londoners from all around the shop uh, moved to places like Essex, and uh, you know South South Londoners probably moved to Kent. Um, I think um, you know Ashley Waters, for example lives in Kent, um, but, you know, is what it is. Anyway. Over the 20th century, more than a million people left East London due to, among other things, deindustrialization, overcrowding, and poverty. My grandparents, and through them, my great-grandparents, recounted tales of biting, po- uh, biting poverty growing up in East London. They spoke of having to eat their pet rabbits in desperation. Fuck, really? Now, that's depressing. Like, I'm not... Killing my, I'm not killing my rabbit for food. That's crazy. That's that's some crazy desperation. Okay. Um. Well, that's really put me off. <laughs> that really threw me off. I did not expect that. Uh, suffering from drawn out illnesses without medical intervention or diagnoses, and relying on food donated by the local church. My parents were the first generation in my family to not have their uh, teeth pulled out at the age of 21, and often with pliers at the butchers to avoid the cost of future dental treatment. The government set up programs to relocate families to build n- to new build towns and council estates in the London peripheries. My four grandparents moved in the early 1950s and 1970s to fully modernised semi-detached houses on council estates in southern Essex. My father's family moved to Debden Estate, now often referred to, to simply as Debden, 
this is where my sister and I were raised too. Uh, to find out if the Cockney dialect moved out of East London along with its speakers, I drew up a long list of all the different linguistic elements of Cockney or London dialects that were mentioned in 20th century and early 21st century publications. These include pronouncing thing as thing, not pronouncing the H in house, house, pronouncing the I in words like milk, uh, <laughs> uh, or is it the L? Oh, sorry, the L in words like milk, but well, like Mick. What do you mean? I say milk, but you don't say the K in that. Um, anyway, as a vowel sound, then it sounds like milk. Oh, there you go, milk. <laughs> milk. <laughs> Saying themselves and his self instead of themselves and his self. Their selves, that's funny. Saying ink instead of ing in words like something and nothing. Uh, so they become something and nothing, <laughs> unlike many other dialects. Uh, of English saying board and board identically. Uh, I then interviewed the first generation who, like my dad, uh, grew up in Debsden after their parents relocate, were relocated from East London in the late 1940s and 50s. I found that those who grew up in Essex overwhelmingly nearly, used nearly all these elements of Cockney. In some instances, theirs is even an even more extreme version of Cockney than that previously documented in London. For instance, as mentioned, it has long been known that Cockneys say L as W in many words. However, it was previously thought that Cockneys do indeed pronounce the, uh, pronounce the L and don't say W when it occurs between two vowels, such as in the phrase, pass the ball over here. <laughs> I'm not going to try to say it. In Debton, I found that even in such phrases, the L could be pronounced as a W sound. Interesting. And this is... And this is Deep rooted. This is more deep rooted than I thought. I didn't realize it was. This has been going on since the forties, um, and that and that's quite fascinating um, to think about. I was only talking about you know my parents, which you know they moved here in the nineties, so you know that's that's a long way away. Um, but this has been going on since the forties and fifties. That's crazy. Interestingly, uh, though, people don't always call it the way the way of speaking in Debden Cockney. I have found that those born in Essex, particularly younger generations, tend to consider their accents to be an Essex one. By contrast, the older generations born in East London are much more likely to consider their accent to be a Cockney one. Our identity and the geographic boundaries within which we live impact the way we speak and how we define our own accent. Researchers found that the way people speak in the town of Middlesbrough, say, has fluctuated over time in line with the repeated redrawing of local administrative boundaries and the town be considered variously part of Yorkshire, Teesside, or Cleveland. Even though uh, even people who aren't from Essex have changed the way they perceive and judge an Essex, Essex accent in line with the arrival of Cockneys to the country. Or county, sorry. My previous research showed how the stigma and negative stereotypes previously associated with Cockney have come to be associated with Essex. On average, people with Essex accents are judged to sound uh, less intelligent, friendly, and trustworthy than people from other parts of South East England. And, uh, yeah, still a thing. That's, that's definitely a thing. Not only, I mean, I, I mean, I do it when it comes to Essex girls. Like, when they, when they talk like this, like, I'm just, oh, I'm like, my ears grind. And I'm from here. Um, it's partly because of my proximity, I guess, that I've, I've just, you know, I've been hit with, hit on the head with them so many times with, with their, with their voices during high school and all that shit. I'm over it personally, but um, I can imagine, you know, people seeing them as dipshits and, you know, putting them on shows like Love Island, that that doesn't exactly help, does it? So, you know, they don't, they don't do their, they don't do themselves any favours. Anyway, continuing on. Not only has people's sense of identity changed in Debden, but as, uh, but as all dialects inevitably do, 
the Cockney dialect has changed on Essex soil. Younger people in Essex speak slightly differently to their East London raised elders. They are less likely to drop in H, to drop in H or an H, and letter H, fucking hell, or say anything, and their vowels are less extreme. Mouth is less li- uh, slightly less likely to become math. Uh, they, <laughs> they also say new things that are much less common among their London-raised parents and grandparents, such as at the end of the day, when introducing the most important point in a discussion or saying use when referring uh, to more than one person. That's what use is somewhere else, right? I thought, like, Scottish people said, use. Anyway, um, Scott, the Cockney dialect has lived a rich and colourful life. She has travelled widely, born a, a large family of children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and she even met the Queen. She hasn't died, she's just called Essex now. That's very nice, that's a very nice finish, very poetic finish. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of my accent in some ways, right? I don't, um, you know, I'm, I don't always, um, I don't, Typically, sound Essex, I don't think. Um, but you know, even, I've even even just there, I said think, not think. Um, I, you know, I do, it, I do it, I do, I have it, I have it. I say water sometimes. You know what I mean? I try and say water, but you know, sometimes I'm just talking. I say water. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you're just talking, and I sometimes talk fast. I sometimes mumble. So you know, it, it can. I mean, sometimes I have to repeat shit to my own mother. Like it's this, you know, constantly. Um, so you know, I'm not. It's a I'm I'm of a melting pot again as a, a you know mixing with, with the um with the other life segment. My my accent is definitely part of a melting pot. I don't sand like this all the time, um. But you know I do have mannerisms. I'll say I do have elements of it in there. Um. But overall, I just feel like I have, you know, I'm 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 a product of a ton of accents. That has culminated into whatever my accent is now. I'll be interested in what you guys think my accent sounds like on the day to day. And this is how you know how I talk on the pod is how I talk. Um, you know, has this um, I guess uh, has this lightness to it. I would say um, it's not gravelly. You know, I pronounce certain words, but you know when I'm talking. There you go, right there. I said talking, not talking. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. That. See? You know what I mean? When you when you, when you recognise it, when I'm trying to I'm trying to recognise it now, and you know, there's a there's there's a ton of stuff, and you know, I'm, I I abbreviate a lot. Um, I don't really call friends by their whole names anymore. I just usually just use their first letter. <laughs> I call my, I call my people D. Call them G. What's up, C? Like. <laughs> I'm cutting it off. I, I I abbreviate a lot. Um. So yeah, language, man. It's a fascinating fucking thing. It really, it really is so fascinating to me. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave you there from the Fishing Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor. It's been good. has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for Bitty's track. Find their full sh- uh, full uh, find their links in the full show notes. And thanks to friend of Ivy Nappy High who has an album drop in I think either next this month or next month um find his link in the full show notes as well thanks for Charisma Affinity and with that said I hope you all have a good week I shall always try and do the same but until next time take it easy ladies and gentlemen